I remember calling my cousin and them saying, well, Katie's at a basketball tournament in Hawaii and I'm locked in the hospital in Minnesota in the freezing cold. It was cold. And I remember calling my cousin who was my age and they're all having a great time. And I'm telling them I'm in Hawaii at a basketball tournament because that's where my team was. And that's what it looked like. And it was just crazy. And I'd spend the next three years in and out of treatment centers, in and out of hospitals, because I didn't want this deal. No one said, well, do you want to be sober? No, I didn't want to be sober. I wanted to die. That's really what I wanted. And God wasn't done with me, right? I attempted suicide multiple times over those next three years. And God just said no. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M., I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Ooh la la. That was the voice, ladies and gentlemen, of Katie T, that you heard at the beginning of this here episode, episode number 284, and you are going to hear so much more from her in just a moment. But first things first, this here episode is brought to you by sponsored by, if you will, not sponsored in the general sense of how we think about it in AA, but, you know, sponsored by Terry and Kurt and Anonymous and Audrey and Lou and Todd and Mary Lynn. What, may you ask, did Terry and Kurt and Anonymous and Audrey and Lou and Todd and Mary Lynn do well? Let me fill you in. They went to our website, www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a a contribution. And you can't see me right now, but I'm doing a little uh, namaste hands like a thank you. They made a, a contribution. So thank you, Terry and Kurt and Anonymous and Audrey and Lou and Todd and Mary Lynn. This here episode is coming right out to Ewan's. We are going to get, oh, I meant to tell you before actually I get right into the episode. The lovely Mrs. M has gone to our website, not gone to our website, she has, um, how do you put it? Yeah, I guess she went to the website, but she has all sorts of uh, uh, back-end kind of configuration uh, stuff that she does to put things on the website, whatever you, whatever you call that. Anyway, she has posted in her website the, um, the most listened Two episodes of 2022. You just go to our website and click on www.soberspeak.com and you click on the tab at the top that says top episodes. And that just means they were the most listened to episodes for, and we have them actually going all the way back to 2019. I have a lot of folks who ask me, you know, which episode should I start with, which are the best ones and all that sort of stuff. So that'll give you an idea though, of the most listened to episodes. All right. Now on to Katie T. So Katie T, we recorded her live at uh, what is called the Tri-Cities, Tri-Cities meeting. 
here in North Texas. Uh, they're generous enough to let me come on in there and record some of the speakers. And we are calling this here episode, God Wasn't Done With Me Yet. Katie is from Plano, Texas. She grew up in a very large family and was the only girl with five older brothers. She was a model at a young age. In fact, I, I tell people that I, I'm a model all the time, but, but it's actually live. Well, actually, so I was a sock model, and I'll pull up my pant leg and say, hey, do you recognize me? Nonetheless, she was a model at a young age and developed an eating disorder. The eating disorder part is not funny. I'm sorry. I'm laughing at myself because I crack myself up sometimes. Anyway, Katie was a what you would call successful with most tasks she set her mind to, including sports, where she excelled at it as a world class athlete in basketball. Katie discusses her multiple suicide attempts, uh, her mom sobering up in Alcoholics Anonymous, the miracle of her relationship with her daughter in Alcoholics Anonymous, and how AA actually helped to raise her daughter and Katie's life as a single parent. Uh, she talks about Mark Houston's influence on her sobriety, the difficulty of changing a sobriety date, uh, Katie's work in treatment centers, living the traditions in her life and how she missed that point early in sobriety. And she also talks about the major car accident she had when in 2016 and some of the repercussions of that accident, including seizures that she has. Uh, on a personal note, I was actually on the outside looking in as Katie experienced one of these seizures during an AA meeting where I was in attendance, and this is some serious stuff. But nonetheless, she talks about all that and much more. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I present to you the one and only Katie tea. Enjoy. And we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this here episode. Enjoy. Let's give a round of applause to Katie. I'm Katie. I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober since July 6th of 2011, and that's a miracle. And I'm grateful to be here tonight. Um, thanks, Steve, I don't know where Steve is. Oh, there he is. Uh, Steve, for asking me to, to do this tonight. Um, it's an honor and a privilege to do anything in Alcoholics Anonymous, really to do anything anywhere, because when I got here, um, I wasn't being asked to do anything or go anywhere or show up anywhere. Today, I get invited to do things like this, and I get invited to back places. And, you know, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was asked to leave places and not return. And... <laughs> kicked out and said, please go away and don't come back. Um, so thank you. Thank you for um, inviting me and asking me. You know, a lot of people came up and asked me if I was nervous to do this. I was a little nervous earlier, and I don't normally get nervous talking about myself in front of people. <laughs> I normally like talking about myself. For some reason at my home group, talking about myself makes me nervous. So it'll, it'll be fine here in a few minutes. So, so this is being recorded. I'm going to talk in a general way what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. There's a lot of people here that are really dear to my heart, and I'm really grateful that y'all are here tonight. Welcome to the newcomer. I, I got a lot of those newcomer chips and desire chips when I came in the rooms. And it's a big deal to stand up and, and get, a, get a chip and surrender. So um, I'm glad you're here. So my story... I, I grew up here in Dallas, Texas. Um, well, in Dallas, a little south of here. I feel like this is Dallas. This didn't exist when I was here, when I was growing up. None of this was here. And, and I grew up in an alcoholic home. I'm the youngest of five kids. Um, I'm the only girl in my, my family. Um, my mom really wanted all boys, and my dad really wanted a little girl. So I'm the baby of five, and I was a little bit of a princess, and I was spoiled, and I got what I wanted when I wanted it from my dad. And my mom kind of just said, yeah, that's the little girl, and we're going to let her be with dad. Um, but really, I grew up in this alcoholic home, and I didn't know it was an alcoholic home because I didn't know any different. Um, my mom got sober when I was 11 years old, 
And, um, you know, I, I share that because I early on got exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous and I started in Alateen when I was um, about 11 or 12 years old. So I was exposed to this program. Um, and, you know, growing up, I grew up in this fairly affluent North Dallas family, Catholic schools my whole life. And, um, and, just kind of did my thing. I, I have these older brothers that are one family and then there's a big gap and then there's a brother that's 18 months older and I, and, and we just kind of did our thing in our family. And, and when my mom got sober, I, I started in Alateen and, you know, I was a bit of an outsider, um, even in my old family, obviously I'm really tall and my brothers like to tease me and tell me I was adopted. <laughs> Um, cause that's what they do with their little sister is, is try and tell them they don't fit in. So I didn't really fit in early on. I wasn't much of a student, um, growing up, I had, um, some learning differences and, and I really struggled in school and I really struggled to just kind of get by. Um, and so I figured out ways early, early on before I ever had any problems with anything, um, to lie and manipulate right? And that was really my first deal was I would change my grades on my report card <laughs> before they came home when I was like, really like in fourth and fifth grade. So my parents didn't know that I was struggling and, and, um, move forward from there. And, and I just wanted them to like me. I wanted my parents to think I was great and they did. And, you know, as a result, I, um, started this image and this, um, this way that my family would put me, um, on this pedestal. And, and so early on, um, that's what my childhood looked like. And I was super successful in their eyes, but I really struggled to get by in school. Um, and then, you know, uh, I, my mom got sober and all of a sudden I has this little girl who was playing sports and running around with all the boys. And she said, Oh, I have a little girl. We're going to put you in modeling. And so I started modeling when I was like 10 years old, 12 years old. And by the time I was 14, I had an eating disorder. That was my first addiction. Um, by the time I was 16, um, I was in treatment for that. And that was over. And by the time I was 17, I was a really good athlete because we got through with the eating disorder and I started playing sports. And, and I say all that just because this is all precursors to drinking for me. Um, but I became very successful at whatever I did very early on and whatever I set my mind to. So, you know, having been exposed to Alatina, I was not, I was that kid that was like, I'm not going to drink. So I didn't drink all through grade school, high school. Um, but I became an athlete and, and that was my, my deal through grade school and high school. Um, and when I graduated from high school, I um, was very successful. I was playing with the U.S. team in Europe. And that's when I first started drinking. Um, I was 17 years old. And I had my first drink. And I had orange Fanta and vodka on a bus. And it was hot. And they don't give you ice. And I just remember drinking that. And I remember getting really sick at a rest stop and getting back on the bus and them saying, you know, you should probably slow down. And I said, well, I got really sick. I threw up and I could probably drink some more. <laughs> and that's how I drank the first time I drank. And that's how I drank pretty much every time I drank after that, right? Is it was, you know, I can drink and it's okay and I'm going to keep drinking. And, you know, I never really figured out that idea that you could just drink a little bit or why you would drink just a little bit. Um, I never had this idea of, you know, just small amounts or, um, or doing things in moderation, right? I mean, I, if I was going to do something, it was a hundred percent or not at all. Um, and that was in every area of my life. So that was, that was when I was, um, 17. And then, you know, I, was on that trip and that was a really big deal for me to be on this U S trip, um, playing basketball. And I came back from that trip early and it was right before college. And, um, it was my first real drinking experience. And I get home early and my parents said to me, they said, why, um, why did you come home early from Europe? Well, um, I wanted to get ready for college. Now that was really the first time I lied about my drinking, but I lied because they sent me home early because my drinking was causing problems from the get go and they kicked me off the trip. 
right? Um, they kicked me off the trip because it was causing problems with the rest of the team and I wasn't playing and I was young. And so I just lied to him and my parents were like, oh, okay, that makes sense, right? And, and so off I went to college in San Diego um, to play basketball. And, and that was my life, right? My life was, you know, show up, play basketball, eat, sleep, and breathe these sports. And um, I lived this image that, you know, that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that the book talks about. And, you know, I got out to San Diego. I had grown up in Texas. I'd grown up this life where, you know, I'd walk around and, and people would call me by my last name because that's what they recognized me as. <laughs> um, and, and I get out to San Diego and I'm playing sports and I'm a well-known athlete, right? I mean, I went to church and these kids in the Park Cities where I grew up wanted my autograph and I get out to San Diego and they know me as the athlete and they know me as this, this um, basketball player. And I get out there and I'm, I'm playing sports, but when I drink, I get really drunk and I get in a lot of trouble, and I have these boyfriends that would put me on a bus and we'd go to Tijuana because Tijuana when you're in San Diego is really close. <laughs> and you take the trolley down to Tijuana and I would, you know, sometimes be meeting friends in Tijuana and, and I'd get drunk to the point that they'd say, well, I thought you were meeting us at this club. And I'd say, well, I don't know what happened. And the blackouts had started and the blackouts started really fast, really early. And, and my boyfriends would take me home, put me to bed and I had never made it to the club. Like, I, I don't know what happened. Um, or we'd have these parties. And again, I'm an athlete, so I can have a party in the dorm and no one's going to do anything or they're just going to kick me out of the dorm and move me to another one. By the time I'm a sophomore, I've lived in all the dorms on the campus at University of San Diego. <laughs> and my parents said, well, why are you living in so many different dorms? Well, I didn't like my roommate or I didn't like the, the third floor or I didn't like the co-ed by floor. Or, I didn't, let me tell you, the lies just built right? And, and it's hard to keep up with those lies. Or I didn't like the stairs because I had to hurt my knee at one point. Now, the knee injury was pretty devastating. Um, when you're a world-class athlete and you have a devastating knee injury, and that's my identity, um, I discovered really fast that the other substances and the pain meds, and I could mix those pain meds with alcohol, and that progressed my disease really fast. So, you know, I would have these parties in the dorms and, and we'd get drunk and they'd steal the keg out of my closet and then I'd go steal it back from the RAs and then I'd get in trouble with the university and I'm on probation. <laughs> but no one really cared because I'm an athlete, right? So there weren't any real consequences. The first real consequence came when I was, I think I was still 17 or 18 and I got a minor in possession in college. And, you know, again... I live this one life in Texas and I live a different life in California. So I'm not going to call my parents who could easily have gotten me out of that. Instead, I just go do whatever I need to do with the court. And I say, oh, I just won't tell my parents because that always worked out well for me. It did not work out well. Um, the, the California courts just suspended my Texas license for use in California, um, which I didn't really care. Um, I just kept doing what I was doing and driving and, and going about my business. But, you know, they would um, keep telling me at school, you know, you probably should go to AA, AA. And I'd say, I'm not going to AA. My mom's in AA. I know what that's like. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And so for about a year, the, the school would, would try to refer me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, and I'd keep having these knee surgeries because I'd keep um, drinking and getting in trouble and... Um, you know, at one point in these dorms, I was living in a dorm that was all female athletes on one floor, and then the men's soccer and rugby team were right above us. And I will tell you, that was a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, and I, my family's deal was if you got a full scholarship to college, you got a car, right? Well, I got a full scholarship to college, so my sophomore year, I got this convertible in San Diego, and, and I had this, this nice car in California, and then I had a, a apartment on the beach because I had free place to live on campus for my scholarship and a place to live at the beach. And, you know, at one point, the place to live on campus was supposed to be where I was going to be sober, and the place to live at the beach was where, and, you know, it was just really too hard to keep track of that. <laughs> And that life started to collide, and um, it, it came to a head um, um, in Halloween of, of 1998. I was a junior in college, and 
I had been in so much trouble. And if you know, um, Alcohol and Drug Awareness Week happened to be that week. And in college, they really frown on continuing to drink when you're an athlete. And they try to get these athletes to do these pledges. And and I was two and a half years into my drinking. And they said, okay, so you're going to sign this pledge, which means you're not going to drink. Well, we all sign the pledge every year. And we all drank every year. And so, you know, that's what I did. I signed this pledge. And I drank. And it was um, Halloween. And I will tell you, I was I Dream a Genie. I was six foot three. I weighed like 130 pounds soaking wet. It was a disaster. I came to in my convertible on the highway and I had about 10 people in my car and I was in a complete blackout and I came to and I said, where are we going? And they said, Nico's, which was the taco shop that we went to all the time. And uh, the next thing you know, is I woke up in my apartment on campus and I, at this point was living in graduate housing. Now there were no more places for me to live on campus. So they put me in graduate housing with the families because you could actually drink in graduate housing and they'd stop trying to figure out how to get me not to drink and they just conceded. So I was living in graduate housing and I came to in this apartment and uh, I didn't have my car, I didn't have my costume and I had no idea how I'd gotten there. And it was November 1st of 98. And when I came to, um, I was scared. <laughs> and uh, that Catholic guilt, whatever you want to call it, came back. And I thought, well, I'm going to go to church because that's what I did at, at school is we went to church on Sundays. And it was All Saints Day. And I went into church and the priest was talking about how you put on this mask and your true self comes out. And I was scared. And I didn't know how I'd gotten there, or what had happened. And uh, the school one more time had called and said, you know, you, you're going to do something different. And so I went to a midnight meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous for me for the first time in my life on November 1st of 1998. And uh, what that looked like was um, in a warehouse in San Diego. I don't remember where or, or who was there other than um, there was this dude, Abe. He was a young person in Alcoholics Anonymous at the time, and he was picking up a one-year chip, and then there were four old people. Um <laughs> And they were old. One of the guys got in a fight with another guy, and they went out in the parking lot, and he had a heart attack at my first meeting. <laughs> um, and, and Abe gave me some ladies' phone numbers. And at that point, I was still really, like, a rule follower for the most part. Like, when somebody gave me direction and I was scared, I would follow it. I've since in Alcoholics Anonymous become a non-rule follower. <laughs> um, but I followed the rules and he gave me these ladies' numbers and I went home at one in the morning and I called them and they said, are you going to drink tonight? And I said, no. And they said, great, then call me in the morning. And, and I did. And, and, you know, that was my beginning in Alcoholics Anonymous in San Diego. And, you know, a lot of things transpired. And over the next 30 days, I would, you know, kind of go in and out of AA in San Diego. And my parents came in town and I was declared un ineligible to play basketball because that knee injury, I would do things like, you know, drink and take those pain meds and go run 10 miles and cause more problems. And so four surgeries in after a year, a year of that, they said, you're no longer going to play. And I was, um, became the youngest coach in NCAA history at 19 years old for a D1 basketball team. And that was a big deal. So my parents come in, my whole family, there's 15 of them fly in for this big ceremony at Thanksgiving that year. Um, and they all come in town and, and I can't do it. They don't know that I'm sober. They don't know that I'm trying to get sober. They don't know anything because they still have this image of this young girl in Dallas that, you know, um, they have pictures hanging on the wall of me dressed in white with my four brothers, like this angelic look. Right. And, uh, and so they come in town and they leave. And my mom looked at me during that trip and she said, everything seems too perfect. I know you're not this happy. And she left. And 24 hours after she left, I um, overdosed and drank myself into oblivion with a note in my apartment. And they found me, the RA found me, and they checked me into Charter. If you remember those ads for Charter, if you get help somewhere, don't get help here, please get help somewhere. They, they put me in charter. They said, you can go voluntarily or we can have you committed. And I said, well, I'll go voluntarily because then you can't tell my parents. Again, I'm still so worried about what that image is going to look like, right? So at 19, I went into charter hospital and I get into charter and keep in mind, I have this knee injury. So I'm on crutches and I'm very, very uh, affluent and manipulative. So I manipulate my way into a private room where I promptly attempt suicide and I come out of a nine day coma. And after a nine-day coma, my, um, my dad and mom are sitting there, and they said, what's wrong? And I, you know, 
I have a little bit of knowledge of the 12 steps and uh, I try to make amends to them for everything that I've done. I don't recommend making amends <laughs> from a psych hospital. Um, <laughs> that didn't go well. So that was the beginning. That was the beginning of my crazy um, introduction into Alcoholics Anonymous and into this program, right? That was um, December, November, December of, of 1998. Now you may have heard my sobriety date wasn't in the 90s. Um, so, you know, that was the beginning of it. And I, that started my journey. From there I went, I don't know, to Hazelton or the Menninger Clinic, Mayo Clinic. And I remember calling for Christmas that year. My family was in Kansas visiting family. And, and I remember calling my cousin and, and them saying, well, Katie's at a basketball tournament in Hawaii. And I'm locked in the hospital in, in uh, Minnesota in the freezing cold. It was cold. <laughs> And, and I remember calling my cousin, who was my age, and they're all having a great time, and I'm telling them I'm in Hawaii at a basketball tournament because that's where my team was, right? And, and that's what it looked like, right? And it was just crazy. And I'd spend the next three years in and out of treatment centers, in and out of hospitals, because I didn't want this deal, right? No one said, well, do you want to be sober? No, I didn't want to be sober. I wanted to die. That's really what I wanted. And God wasn't done with me. Right? I attempted suicide multiple times over those next three years, and God just said no. And so I'd hang out in treatment, and I'd run away from treatment. And, and you know, at one point I'd come to Dallas and thank God for the Preston group. They would come and they'd pull me out of hotels and, and the Big Book group, which doesn't exist anymore, but they'd come and they'd try and help me. And, you know, what treatment did for me and, and you know, um, I've worked in the treatment industry now for a number of years, but what treatment did for me is it kept me alive long enough to hear a message in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what, that's what it was, right? And so for the next three years, three and a half years, I'd bounce around the country, and I went to 13 treatment centers over that time period. And so, you know, that's what that looked like. And in 2003, I landed in Denver, Colorado, which is where my parents were, and I was living in a sober living um, in Denver, and, and I got kicked out of it one more time. And I was like, I don't know, 10 or 11 months sober at that time. Um, 2000, no, 2001, sorry. Um, and I got kicked out of it one more time, and, and they said, you're too enmeshed with your family. I hadn't even drank. But I wasn't a rule follower. I didn't follow the rules at this point. At this point, I thought, you know, I can do what I want, when I want, and how I want. And, and then I, you know, got drunk again. And I'm in the middle of Young People's Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I say I'm in the middle of it, I'm in the middle of fellowship of Young People's Alcoholics Anonymous. But if you look at the circle and the triangle, there's three sides to that. And it's the unity, the service, and uh, the recovery. And so I have um, the, the unity aspect, right? So I have the fellowship down. I know how to hang out with y'all. But I don't really know how to um, do the 12 steps and the recovery. And I had the service, right? I was, I was really good at doing the service and going and volunteering and shaking hands and making coffee and cleaning cigarette butts. Um, but I really wasn't, wasn't working the steps. And so, you know, I'm in Young People's AA at this point in Denver, Colorado, and I had 11 months. My parents promised me when I had a year of sobriety, they'd get me an apartment, and I had 11 months twice. I don't know what that was about, but I wasn't ready for that. So I kept drinking. Um, but there was a lady at that Young People's Conference, and her name was Michelle Kay, and her husband was Gary Kay, and she came up to me and she said, um, do you want to be sober? And I will tell you, after three years, I think she was the first person that asked me if I wanted to be sober. And I said, I don't know. And that was probably the most honest I had been in all that time. And she said, well, if you want what we have, then you're going to read the first 43 pages of the big book and be at my house on Sunday. This was like Friday during the conference, and I'd walked out during the sobriety countdown because I drank one more time. And I said, okay. I don't, I don't know why I said okay, but I said okay. And, uh, and the next thing you know, I'm at her house starting to the steps with Michelle Kay. And, and what that looked like, it was like being launched, you guys. And, and so in, in Colorado, I mean, Parker was kind of like going from here to Duncanville. It's quite a ways. And, and at this point, I had worked my way back into my parents' lives, and I had a car. They had traded in that convertible. I was so mad when they traded in that convertible. They traded in for a Jeep, because now I need a Jeep Grand Cherokee. 
Yes, I may have been spoiled. Um, they traded him for a Jeep in Colorado. And, and so now I've got this car and I'm driving to Parker, Colorado to go meet with Michelle in her basement for a Thursday meeting at 7.30. I had to be at her house at 4. We do step work from 4 to 5. Then we do traditions from 5 to 6. Then we'd be at the church by 6.30 to open it up for the church for a 7.30 meeting. And then we do the after meeting at Perkins for ice cream. I might be lucky if I was home by 11, right? And that was every Thursday. And that's what it looked like. Like there was no ifs, ands, or buts. And then on the weekends, it was pack a bag. There was no where are you going. It was pack a bag. And, you know, I'd end up at these random conferences like a regional forum or a service conference. or a, And I didn't know, right? And, and when you don't know, you don't know, right? But I became very teachable in that first year of sobriety with these folks. And, and later I'd come to find out that Gary was the trustee and the delegate and, you know, but I just fell in with this group in Denver, Colorado that taught me the principles of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And so Michelle took me under her wing and she took me through the 12 steps in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous page by page. And then her husband and a couple other people took me through the traditions, right? And Mark Houston was there. And, and then he came to Texas, right? And some of y'all may know who that is. Some of you don't, but if you haven't had the experience of listening to some of his tapes, he's phenomenal. He's since passed, but you know, I, I got to go be a part of that group for about a year and a half. Um, so I made amends to my family. My life got really good. I went back to school. I wasn't a student, but I went back to school and, you know, I still hadn't quite gotten there. I wasn't there with school. I was still lying and, and I didn't pass my last class, but I walked at graduation not knowing I hadn't passed my last class. <laughs> so I walked at graduation at University of Colorado. That would come back later. So I moved to Texas right after that graduation and I met, um, I met my daughter's father in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and I had this beautiful little girl. He relapsed when I was pregnant with her, so I left and went to Memphis, where my parents were living at the time. Um, it was really tough. I wasn't supposed to be able to have kids, and it was a really tough pregnancy. And I moved to Memphis, and, and I had this beautiful little girl. Um, my sobriety date at that point was um, December 15th of 2001. And so I was three years sober, and I have this beautiful little girl all by myself. My parents are in Memphis. And the women in Alcoholics Anonymous in Memphis, Tennessee saved my life, right? I show up in Memphis, and I don't know any of them, but again, I fall into the middle of the boat in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I'm working at Central Office in Memphis, and I'm showing up, and I'm, I'm um, every day doing whatever I'm asked to do, and I'm sponsoring women, and I just hit my knees and say, okay, what do I do? And my group in Memphis was a unity group. And um, at the unity group, we'd, <laughs> we'd have a Friday noon meeting, and then we'd all go to Wendy's after the Friday noon meeting. And there was this lady, Sherry, and she was a pharmacist, and she was my sponsor. And, and I called her the, my drive through pharmacist sponsor. Right. And, and I can remember when, when Lily was really little, I'd get in a, a disagreement with my parents and I'd put Lily in the car and I'd drive around until she fall asleep. And then I'd drive through the pharmacy to talk to my sponsor. <laughs> right. And I'd say things like, Hey, I got in a fight with my mom. And, and she'd say, you did what? And I'd say, I got in a fight with my mom. And she'd say, the book says we cease fighting anything and everyone. Where does it say that in the book? And I, what are you talking about? She'd say, drive around. There's somebody behind you. Go find it in the book and drive back through. <laughs> right? And so I got to know the big book really well with that pharmacy sponsor. <laughs> right? And so, you know, I mean, there, there were things like that every, at every turn. Right? And, and. I didn't really get to experience anything different. It was just, this is what I was told to do, and I did it. Um, and that little girl was raised in Alcoholics Anonymous with a lot of love. Um, and so, you know, I stayed in Memphis until she was in kindergarten. Um, I stayed in the middle of the boat, in the middle of sponsorship. And when she was in kindergarten, my dad said, okay, well, she's starting school. It's time for you to put that degree to use. And I said, oh, about that, I didn't really graduate from college. <laughs> That was nine years along. Um, 
And he said, well, I guess you better go back to school. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to go back to Colorado and finish school. And he said, yeah, no, I don't think so. He said, you can stay here and finish school or you can go back to Texas. And so I enrolled at University of Memphis and finally finished my undergraduate degree. Um, It was a bit of a process because I had to take another 60 hours. So I'm probably one of the most, uh, have the most hours of a seven-year degree. (laughs) because I was one class shy and took another 60 hours so I could get a degree. Um, But I did. So I I graduated, and we moved to Texas um, in 2010. December of 2010, we moved to Texas, and I picked up my nine-year medallion at Preston that night, the day we drove in after Christmas. And we drove into Texas, and, and just like this, I was doing a lot of this. I was doing a lot of speaking at the podium, hanging out in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I moved in. Um, it was right after the International in, in uh, where was it, in 2010? I can't remember. San Antonio? Um, and I had spoken in the young people's section of that conference. And, and my ego had gotten really, really big, Right. And so now I'm doing a lot of podium speaking. I'm doing a lot of tradition speaking. I'm doing a lot of fellowshipping. But I moved to Texas, and I didn't get a sponsor. And I didn't get any new women that I was working with. And I got back into just hanging out in Alcoholics Anonymous. So six months into hanging out in Alcoholics Anonymous and speaking at the podium, um, I told my, called my friend, and we'd, we'd been doing a lot of fun stuff. Like we went down to Austin and, and part of that group came back and brought Citywide to Dallas. And, you know, we did a lot of fun stuff, right? But we were, I, I, <laughs> I was not working 10, 11, and 12. And so six months later, I, I called my friend, 4th of July, and I said, I want to go up to the village in Park Cities and I want to have a drink with those moms. And they said, um, what do you mean you want to have a drink? You're in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. You've been sober almost 10 years. I said, no, I want to have a drink. I think I could probably drink normally. Maybe it was just all those drugs, right? That's what it was. And, uh, and he said, you're nuts. He said, why don't you come over here? And we were, we were going to meet at his folks' house down the street from my house. And I get there, and he wanted me to pray, and I didn't want to pray. He wanted to get me to a first step, and I didn't want to get to a first step. I said, no, I want to try some drinking. I want to try a glass of wine. I'd never had a glass of wine, never in my life. So I thought maybe a glass of wine would work. And he said, what did you used to drink? And I said, Jack Daniels. And he said, uh, there's probably some in that cabinet. And he stood up in his parents' house, and he put a bottle of Jack Daniels in front of me. And he said, in his 30-plus years, no one had ever taken him up on that offer. Well, I was the first. I took him up on that offer. Um, my sponsor could probably tell you better what happened next. This is all hearsay. Um, at some point, I ended up at home. There were a handful of people at my house in sobriety, because we were all supposed to go see fireworks that night for 4th of July. Um, I went out to smoke a cigarette. I don't know what happened next. Apparently, the police were called. They left. They came back. I don't know. I I thought this was all like in a very short time period, but apparently they don't like having to come back to your house a couple times in one night. Um, I went back out front, and they put me in handcuffs and took me to the psych hospital five hours after I started drinking at nine and a half years of sobriety. So... Five hours into my drinking, I'm in handcuffs going to the psych hospital, and I've got my phone in my pocket, and I've somehow managed to get my phone out, and I'm texting Frank, and I'm going, is this really happening? Am I really going to the hospital? Did you have me arrested? Like, I didn't believe it. And I get to the hospital, and they put me in one of those rooms, and they give me a shot, and I eventually wake up, and I go to the nurses. I'm like, I need to get out of here. They said, you're here for 72 hours, ma'am. I said, then I I need to have a meeting. They said, we don't have meetings in this part of the hospital. I said, then give me another shot and put me back in that room. (laughs) They said, people don't ask for that. I said, that's because I'm sane, and I can't do this. And and so, you know, I manipulated and lied my way out of that hospital, and I called a friend who owned a treatment center who signed me out like 10 hours into that stay. And I went back to my home group a few hours later, and they said, are you done? And I said, with profanity, I don't know, y'all locked me up. And uh, they said, then go try some controlled drinking and stay away from the drugs and the bridges and and don't try and kill yourself and uh, let us know if you want help if you're an alcoholic. And um, I went back out and I drank for a few more days. 
So by the grace of God, I made it back to Alcoholics Anonymous a few days later. So um, six days after that, I, I was back in my seat in Alcoholics Anonymous, convinced that I was a real alcoholic. But I, I will tell you, at some point in that time period, I had conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic, but I had forgotten that, right? Because I forget what it was like. I forget that, you know, all the pain and suffering. I mean, when I was drinking, I would do things like disappear for days from my parents and they would find me in hotels and steal their cars and, you know, the problems that I had caused. And, you know, that those six days were really short six days, but a really long six days. I was teaching summer school at the time and I'd go to go to school and my kids, I was teaching middle school math and science, and the kids would say, Miss Katie, how was your 4th of July? Oh, it was great, right? It was totally great. They had no clue what, what was going on. I was locked up in a hospital, craziness. And, and you know, that's what it looked like, because I just could put on, just like this, put on some makeup, do my hair, and off I go, right? Um, and so what has the last 11 years looked like? So I came back, and I got in the middle of the boat, and I sat all the way down. I should probably say the night before I got drunk, I ran into my ex for the first time in nine years, or probably five years. I had seen him a few times when my daughter was born. I ran into my ex at a, at a uh, treatment center that we'd gone to hear a speaker. I obviously had some resentments there. Um, he was not my favorite person. My daughter really didn't have a relationship with her dad, and I was really angry at him. Um, so in the last 11 years, he and I have come full circle. She would say things like, I want to invite my dad to, to my volleyball game. Can I use your phone? And he'd invite her, and, and that relationship has changed. Now, we're not best friends, but we have pool parties, and he comes over with his kids, right? And we have... Um, events at the house and, and she wants to have a relationship with her dad and she does and I have a relationship with him and his kids and his his wife and I'm their emergency contact at the school today like that's Alcoholics Anonymous and that's recovery you know um, I got this sponsor and and we started at the beginning and we went all the way through the steps and you know, I got to be a part of Norma's life and the gathering of eagles and, and if you didn't know Norma she was um she was an icon at the Preston Group, and she passed away in 2013. Um, but I got to be there at the end of her life. And, you know, being able to be a part of, of uh, someone's life and the end of their life and go and sit and read to them when they're passing and they're still trying to help you and 12-step you, and I'm reading the 12 and 12 to her, and she's like, you know, some of the things I would take away from her, she would say things like she wanted me to read uh, – the 11th step in the 12 and 12. And she'd say things like, now that says ask. Ask means pray, Katie. <laughs> right? So every time I'm reading something like that and I, I'm, I'm doing that, those are the things I take away from that. Right? And, and, you know, I got to go through a lot of those experiences. Right? And so that was early on this, this go around. And then, you know, the women in the program would pick me up and, and just give me guidance all throughout, right? This group, so I know I'm kind of all over the place right now because i am got 15 minutes to talk about 11 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll just start. So, you know, I, I came back in um, in 2011. It was, it was the 4th of July. I was teaching summer school, and I didn't really know what I was going to do. I hated my job. I hated my living situation. I'm living in the Park Cities trying to keep up with the Joneses, right? And, and you know, here I am, this single parent with a kindergartner. And, you know, that wasn't who I was. But I had this facade. Like I said, I really wanted everyone to like who I was and like me. And, you know, at some point I had to just throw up my arms and give up and say, that's not who I am. I don't want to be that person. And so, you know, I, um, I gave up and I got a new job and I, I was working um, as, a, as a teacher, as an alcohol and drug educator for the schools um, in my daughter's school district. At that point, I was doing something else, but then I switched over and, and I became this teacher and I started teaching this alcohol and drug education in the schools. And, you know, I realized really fast that I could help a lot more people doing that. 
And that's what I started doing um, in 2011. And really quickly, I moved from that into working in the treatment industry. And my daughter was in, in schools and she was struggling with school. And I, just like I had struggled with school and I didn't know how to help her. And, and the women, at this point, I'd started going to Al-Anon. Al-Anon, you guys, somewhat saved my life, too, and my relationships. And, and I was able to get my daughter some help. And so she went to, to another school and got help with her reading. And, you know, the program, The Steps, allowed me the opportunity to set aside and realize that her experience was a different experience than mine. And that my character defects weren't her character defects. And that, you know, I could have a relationship with God and that she wasn't my God. <laughs> um, when I went out and drank, she was out of town. She was six years old and she'd gone out of town. And I would say that if your higher power can go out of town, you need a new higher power. <laughs> right? Because she'd become my higher power. And that's possible. If you, you don't believe me, you know, that kid had become my higher power. And so, you know, I got to have a new relationship with God and a new higher power. Um, and so, you know, things started to change really rapidly for me once I went through the steps and once I had surrendered and had a new relationship with God. Um, so we moved, we moved out of that house cause I was living in, in a house that my parents owned and my parents paid all the bills and I was talking AA and I was hanging out in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I wasn't living the traditions. I wasn't self-supporting. I wasn't really showing up. I wasn't working with new women. I didn't have a sponsor. And so when I came back, I was doing all those things. And so I moved to North Dallas, and, and um, I became self-supporting. And I had gotten this new job, and I started working. And I never thought I could do that, right? I, I grew up in a world where I thought, you know, I had to have um, check all these boxes in order to, to be able to do that. And... You know, we moved to North Dallas, and then a year and a half into that, we had this major car accident. Some people here saw part of that, but y'all recently saw the remnants of that. <laughs> um, but we had this major car accident in March of 2016. And, and what that looked like, we were T-boned in downtown Dallas, and I had a back, neck, and brain injury, and I couldn't walk, really function for a year. Um, I had uh, to go in the hospital, and my daughter had to go in the hospital, and I had seizures, and the women in Alcoholics Anonymous again showed up. And they took care of food, doctor's appointments, driving, taking care of anything and everything we needed, right? And, you know, I was at that point, my home group was the legacy group in Plano. And I remember coming home from the hospital and the rehab hospital after a period of time, and my daughter was in her room crying, and I said, what's wrong? And she said, are these people ever going to leave? <laughs> right? And she was talking about the guys that were hanging the handicap rods and the sponsors that were, um, make, or the grand sponsor that was making the, the chicken soup and, and the sponsor and the nurses, and every one of them were in Alcoholics Anonymous, Right? And, you know, today she asks when they're coming back and when can we have a party and when can we, what can we do, right? Because she loves all of y'all. Um, but that was in 2016 that that accident happened. And, you know, since then, it's just like my life catapulted, right? I, I, the doctor said, you won't be able to take care of your daughter again. You won't be able to work. You won't be able to do these things. I'm here to tell you, I did them all and a lot more, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I got to do that and then get more involved in service. Everything I learn and everything I do at work, I pretty much learned in service in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I may have a degree from college or, or this or that, but I got really involved in, in general service in AA and in service in conventions in AA. And I learned how to do spreadsheets. I learned how to do banquet event orders. I learned how to do all these things that I thought at the time, like, why am I doing this? And then I go to work and I'm like, oh, I do, I do know how to do that. I learned it in Alcoholics Anonymous. I still haven't figured out how to put that on my resume. <laughs> but um, people ask me how I do that. And I'm like, well, um, yeah, I just go to a meeting. <laughs> so, you know, and in the last couple of years, you know, there's been lots of changes with my family. My family's moved, and now my parents are down in Austin, but I, I got to be of service to them. 
You know, we don't have the best of relationships. I remember when I went and made amends to my parents, they were in Florida, and I had this deal with God, like, if I can get airline tickets for $200 on Priceline, right, I was going to make this deal. And sure enough, I got airline tickets for $200, right? Because I had this little girl, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to go make these amends. And I made these amends to my mom, and and the next thing you know, you know, we're fighting over food for, for Lily, and and I went in my room, and I hit my knees, and she said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I just don't want to fight anymore. And I dropped the rope and I ceased fighting, right? And I stopped that argument. Now, does that mean that we don't fight anymore? No, but it's a lot, lot better than it was, right? Um, those relationships have been mended so much better, so much better, right? And, and I get to show up for life today. That little girl, when she was in kindergarten, we fought, And today, she's my best friend. Today, we have great relationships. We have great conversations, right? So, you know, I got to go back to work. I got to increase my career tenfold, right? Um, I took her out of town for her 18th birthday, right? This was just recently. And when I took her out of town, I took her and her boyfriend to Mexico because they wanted to drink, right? And what is that supposed to look like? And I didn't know what that was going to look like, but she doesn't drink like I do, right? And and when we came home from that trip um, is is when I got sick again, and I had a seizure not too far from here at the trailer, right? And, And the people in this group showed up one more time. And for a month, I couldn't drive, and we had this rotating schedule, and everyone, you know, at the house, and there were a lot of women in this room that showed up for that, and and they they were there every two hours. For a month, I couldn't drive, and you guys brought me to meetings again. And the doctor said, well, we don't know. We'll see what this looks like. And we had this EEG on my head, and I, you know, I don't know. But God performs miracles, you guys, because I'm a miracle standing right here. And, and I'm back at work again, right? And, and I don't know how this happens other than I suit up, and I show up, and I invite God in on a daily basis. And, and David A. used to say that. David A. would say, invite God in. Um, and, and, you know, today that's what it looks like. Today I, I just get to invite God in and be in gratitude for all these gifts. Because they're all gifts. They're all grace, right? I get God's grace on a daily basis, and, and I just am here for the ride. Like, I just show up, and the rest is taken care of. So, you know, just recently I went back to work. And, and I go into work with this attitude of how can I help these people and how can I be of service rather than how am I going to direct and what, what is this going to look like? And they actually want me to be there. They're like, when can you come back? How can we get you to come in more? Because I took this year to really kind of hang out with, with my daughter before she heads off to college. Because that little girl, that little girl's going to college. That one that couldn't really do a lot in school has scholarships to college and has relationships and and that relationship with with my parents and her dad and these people you know she is the kindest teenager that i know and she shows up in life you know every day she comes down and she gives me a hug before she goes to school you know and and that's not me. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. People say to me, you know, you've done a great job with her. I will say we've done a great job with her. <laughs> we collectively, because Alcoholics Anonymous is, is what's done that. I grew up in this program and so did she. And I'm really grateful um, for the miracles of this deal because it's not um, anything that I did special. I'm really grateful to be here. Thanks. I am sure you would agree with me. That was an absolutely fantastic talk. Thank you so much, KDT, for allowing us to share your experience, strength, and hope over these Sober Speak airwaves. If you are listening out there and you were impacted by that, and I'm sure many of you were, please take a some time to pause your device and share that episode with a friend or family member. It may be just what they need 
today. And now, on to a little bit of a listener feedback. So the first piece of listener feedback here is actually a message that my friend Brad received uh, from somebody else. And so let me give the setup here. So Brad is kind enough uh, and giving enough of himself that he actually communicates with many of the inmates that write into sober speak for those of uh, sometimes it's difficult to get that hookup made for when they reach out. But Brad is the one who has many times reached out to these inmates and he will have some correspondence with them. One of the gentlemen that Brad reached out to was a gentleman named Zach and Zach wrote to Brad and he said, Hey Brad, I just want to let you know I'm still in the race. Saturday will be my six months of sobriety. I've been working on the steps, making amends, and found an 11th step meeting that I really love. The last two months were very busy, but I'm in the po- but I'm in the program full swing. I hope you're doing well, Brad, and that everything is good your way. I know it's been a while, but I'd love to catch up sometime soon if you're available to talk. You, Brad, were a huge influence in my first steps of sobriety, and I am forever grateful of you getting me introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You have helped me in more ways that I can count. I just wanted to say thank you for guiding me into this journey. I mean, is that something else? Uh, I just, man, I, uh, that, I, that just floored me when I got it. I just, you know, these connections that we form in this fellowship uh, is absolutely unreal. And Brad, I want to say thank you publicly. And Zach, I want to say God bless you, my friend, and I'm glad you are on the right track. Um, thank you for letting all of us be a part of your journey. Ryan writes in and he says, hi, oh, and the uh, subject line is thank you. He says, hi, John, my name is Ryan B. And I live in the same northern British Columbia town as John D. Uh, this, uh, yes, so John D is J-O-N as opposed to J-O-A-J-O-H-N. Anyway, uh, I reckon I remember John D from writing in. And he said, whose emails you have read, read, led on the listener feedback portion of your podcast a few times. He was the one who actually put me onto your podcast and has recently become my sponsor and has taken me through the steps. That's so cool. Uh, he says, I bounced in and out of the rooms for a couple of years, the old one, two, three out shuffle, right? But this is the first time. Uh, I've fully committed to the program and I fully turned my will and my life over to God. And I couldn't have imagined the difference it made in my life almost immediately. I listen to two to three episodes of your podcast a day, but I'm ashamed to admit that I normally skip to listen. <laughs> <laughs> the listener feedback section at the end so I can get to the next speaker. That's okay, my friend. No big deal. He says, today I had just finished doing my fist step, which was a profound and powerful experience. I got into my car to drive home and it was on the listener feedback portion and I don't, and I didn't bother starting at a new episode. And wouldn't you know it, the email you read was from my sponsor, John, who is, uh, uh, which had, uh, had sent you back when he was about to start his four-step. Wow. <laughs> Very cool. And here he was today, having just taken me through my fifth step. It showed me that progress uh, that it showed me the progress, not perfection, wink, uh, a, a winky emoji that we have both made during this time and further confirmed that I am on the right path. A year ago, I might have called it a coincidence, but today uh, it felt like uh, a little message from God saying, good stuff, boys, keep it up. <laughs> You kind of have a like a like a southern kind of god there. Anyway, he says, "Sorry for the rambling email. I tend to be a little verbose 
And that character defect has not been removed yet, Big Smiley Face. Your podcast has been instrumental in my early recovery and the spiritual shift I've experienced. Thank you so much for all you do. Much love and God bless Ryan B. P.S. I promise to listener li- listen to the listener feedback. <laughs> <laughs> to the listener feedback portion from now on. <laughs> well, it's okay with me uh, either way, Ryan. And love back to you, my friend, and God bless you. And uh, uh, very, very cool. Again, hey, you'll get to hear yourself on listener feedback now, huh? That'll be cool. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's cool for you. Maybe it's not. But nonetheless, Wendy writes in, everyone knows is Wendy. She says, hi, John, I'm from... Kimberly, BC, Canada, British Columbia, Canada. She says, I listen to Sober Speak on a regular basis. And last night I heard about the Facebook group. So I thought I would check it out this morning. My husband and I are both 15, are both sober. He's 15 years and I have five. We love listening to your podcast. So just in case you're out there listening for the first time and you don't know what Wendy is writing about, uh, if you want to be part of the soup, secret Facebook group, go to your Facebook application and look up super, excuse me, not super secret. You look up sober speak secret group. It always takes me a second for that. Too many S's, I guess is what it is. Anyway, thanks for writing in Wendy. I appreciate it. Donna writes in and she says, hello, John. I am Donna and I am an alcoholic. I am 21 months sober. I will be two years sober on the 21st of May, 2023. I am from North Yorkshire in England, but I have lived in Southampton for over 20 years. I am 44 and I have alcoholism within my family. Sadly, they never got help. They never got the help they needed and passed away. I found Sober Speak on my podcast app. I listen to the episodes while I'm at work. I have a home group in East Lee, Southampton. I have resonated with most of the shares I have heard. I love listening to the podcast about alcoholism as I need to keep hearing the stories and how bad things were. I am going to a convention this week in Jersey on the Channel Islands. I'm assuming that's probably over in... uh, 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 England there. And she says, I'm really looking forward to it. Kind regards, Donna. Well, thank you. Um, I hope uh, by the time you heard this, by the time you hear that, that convention was really cool and uh, appreciate you writing in from across the pond, Donna. Laura writes in, oh, hey, here's another one from across the pond. I, uh, hi, John. I am from Blackpool, England. Now that is a cool city name, Blackpool. Pool. I don't know why I like that. And after, and I am five weeks sober through AA. I came across your fab podcast. Now that is cool, like the fab four fab podcast through the big book AA app. And I listen every night in bed instead, uh, and, 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 and instead of the radio in the car. Thank you. Well, Laura, if you're listening to this right now, why either you're driving or you're in bed, howdy. And thanks a lot for, for writing in. I'm, I'm thinking about the Big Book AA app. I'm not sure what that is, but I'm really glad you found us, Laura. Thanks for writing in. Stephanie writes in. Stephanie says, hey, John, I am an addict at 37 days sober today, and I'm from the Tulsa, Oklahoma area. I've learned so much listening to your guests. I started at the beginning. My favorites are Andrew A., Samara S., Doug S., Mary B., and Brenda J. I've gradually learned throughout my life that my experiences weren't quote normal. Normal people remember their actions and go to sleep in regular places. I remember once asking my straight-laced co-worker what his reaction was when he walked into a party and there was coke on the table. I was genuinely curious. He looked at me as if I had slapped him and said, Stephanie, has that literally... (laughs) 
that has literally (laughs) never happened to me. (laughs) Yeah, you got to be sure. Yeah, you got to be careful. You share with Stephanie. (laughs) He's he says she says it's funny now, but I remember the world silently screeching to a halt. I could not comprehend his response. That's normal where I come from. Drugs and booze, oh plenty. My first drunk was my first blackout around thirteen. I do not understand moderation. The line in my NA book says, "quote One is too many. A thousand is not enough." Unquote took my breath away. I've used drugs and drank socially, but I mostly uh, use when I was. Oh, I mostly used when I was alone. I would try and pull some. I would, oh, I would try any pill someone put in my mouth. I was well into adulthood before I recognized my behavior was abnormal. I've quit a bunch of times, but this time I feel like I have the right mindset and headspace for it. I'm working the steps for the first time and working with a therapist. Thanks for suggesting Insight Timer. Oh, I, I suggested that on one of the episodes. Okay. She says, I'm, a, I'm right at around episode 70 now where David G is explaining the steps. It's nice to hear different perspectives on work in the program. I'm grateful for you and your work. You are helping so many people. You're helping me. Namaste hands. Stephanie B. Well, Stephanie B. Namaste hands right back at you. Thank you for writing in. Emma. Emma, Emma, Emma writes in, she says, hi, John, I am the group rep and treasurer for a small Al-Anon group in Ireland. Wow, about that. That is cool. I have been attending meetings since March of 2009, uh, having run into trouble with aggressive and abusive college mates who were drinking, drugging, and becoming potentially violent toward me. Thankfully, I found Al-Anon, which has helped me live the program. I found your site today as someone else asked me to explain the 12 steps to them and what it means. Emma. Okay. So she found us. It sounds like directly through the website. I have a lot of people going to the, we have a lot of posts out there. You guys can go look at it if you want. There's a blog, uh, all kinds of posts out there, but that's how people are finding us uh, a lot nowadays. Thank you for writing in Emma. Emma. Deidre writes in and she says, hi, John, I am Deidre from Pratt, Kansas, P-R-A-T-T. She says, I've got eight-ish years. I go to a lot of meetings. I have a sponsor. I do a lot of prayer and meditation. I do my service work. I do what the program suggests that I do. Before I came into the program, being raised in an alcoholic family and then being, and then I married two of them. Then I married two alcoholics. I thought that uh, this was a normal life when I kicked off and I started drinking at the age of about 43 because my husband at the time owned a bar. I didn't really drink much, but later as life got harder and things got rougher and then I got kicked out and started drinking more and more and I just hit bottom and I could not let my girls see me that way. I... Uh, I could not let them see me the way I was because I was turning to my dad. I was turning into my dad. So long story short, I weathered a lot of storms. I've lost everything and I'm rebuilding it back. It's tough one day at a time, but the program and the people in it keep me strong and keep me moving in today. I can now actually say I'm Deidre K and I am a grateful recovering alcoholic. Well, guess what, everybody? That wraps up this week. I take this one week at a time. I hope to be back. Where did that come from? I hope to be back next week. Uh, who knows? I may, I may not. Like I said, everything's one week at a time. And uh, what do I like to say to end this thing up? Oh, yeah. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Now, you can't see me like I'm pointing with my finger, like I'm like pointing over the wall, throwing my finger toward the wall. Anyway, keep coming back. It works if you work it. May God bless you and keep you until then. Have a good day or have a good week or have a good, I don't know, have a good life if you, if you never listen to an episode again. <laughs> okay. I love you guys. Bye.